Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, you gorgeous lot. Welcome to a brand new mini-series from the lovely people at History Hat. I'm Charlotte White, but you can call me Charlie. And this is Misunderstood. I'll be joined by a stellar lineup of guests who will each help me explore the lives of women who've been dealt an unfair hand by history. They may not all be great women who changed the world. They may not all be good women but they will all be interesting. Some have been forgotten, some ignored, some misrepresented. They have all been misunderstood. Elizabeth Fremantle is the critically acclaimed author of four historical novels set in the Tudor court. Her debut, Queen's Gambit, has been adapted into a highly anticipated film. Firebrand starring Alicia Vikander as Catherine Parr and Jude Law as King Henry VIII premiered at the Cannes Film Festival, and early reviews have been wonderful. She's here today to discuss her latest historical novel, Disobedient, and the woman whose little-known life story inspired it. Hello, Elizabeth. Hello. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm thrilled to have you on today. Uh, This is exactly the kind of woman who Misunderstood was made for. Um, So, Disobedient, it's set in early 17th century Rome and tells the story of Artemisia Gentileschi. You're going to have to call me up on my pronunciation if I get it wrong. Um, (laughs) Where do we find her at the beginning of her story? Okay, so I just, my novel just really covers a year in her life. She's age 17, growing up in Rome, in a kind of slightly impoverished artist's household. She's the only daughter um, of... Orazio Gentileschi, who he's an artist, you know, he's a jobbing artist. He's he's good. He's not one of the greats, but he's a very good and he's been successful. And and, you know, we can still see his paintings uh, on hanging on the walls of galleries now. Um, and she has three brothers and she's the oldest, the only girl. And. Um, she is obviously also a painter. Um, And she's just reached this age where her father's kind of started to see the depth of her talent and has also started to recognise that she's a better painter than he is. So there's some 
friction in the family as a result of that. He's kind of proud and excited about her talent, but he's horrified, one, that that she's got all this talent and she's the girl and her brothers don't have anything like so much promise. Um, But also that she's a better painter than him. And it it makes him... He's je- he's kind of jealous and proud at the same time, and it causes a lot of friction. He's a big drinker. He's, you know, th- th- it's not a happy family household. So that's where we are at the beginning. Rome is a kind of, it's a sort of new Renaissance city, really. It's um, obviously the site of, you know, the, the, the kind of centre of the Catholic world. But also it's this place where, People are amassing huge, wonderful art collections as they had been in Florence, maybe, you know, 50 years before. Rome has become this place. People are building incredible palazzos and the whole city is being transformed over the last sort of decade. And it's really this is still continuing to happen. So there are all these artists drawn to the city. So they're very much a part of that milieu. They're they're also on their uppers. So Arazzo is not really getting any good commissions. And and then he starts to pass off her work as his in order to get commissions. Of course, increasing the friction in the family. Yeah. Isn't that wonderful to think that there was sort of a, a renaissance and then another renaissance. It just kept going. Just all this art being commissioned, all the building just flourishing over a really long period of time it was a very very long it was about 200 years really and I think you know that yes there were waves of it and those waves hit different because they were nation states they weren't just all cities in Italy then they you know Rome was a different nation state to Florence with different rulers and and as Venice was a different so it's nothing like modern Italy and so these waves of of kind of new and exciting ideas would pass through these different places at different times. And of course, 10, 10, 15 years before, Caravaggio had been the painter in Rome, um, who was really, he had, he kind of changed the whole kind of painterly aesthetic. And so there are all these other painters who are, they're called Caravaggisti, who (laughs) were painting, you know, in a, they were his imitators, really, because everybody wanted work. Where so he, rather than making the biblical scenes all look like they sort of everything out of touch, it was they they looked like real people on the real street, people they knew, and so it brought the art really into their world, and rather than being detached from them, and this is very much the manner that that Artemisia takes up. But, you know, she she is really a, a following in his footsteps. It's it's not not a spoiler to say that you know, Caravaggio he, he pops up at the very beginning of the book, and it's almost like he he bequeaths to Artemisia this kind of baroque, gothic, um, very dark way of looking at at the world. Yeah, and there, there was there's always a lot said about his lighting and how you know his his paintings are very dark and often there's a single light source and and it wasn't it wasn't really you know he made that fashion and uh, you know that so that that's very much you know the, the lighting in her pictures though not not essentially the same as his is it's got similarities and it's definitely definitely um, influenced by him yeah. Gosh. 
And Artemisia's father, of course, he he doesn't he doesn't sort of look at this burgeoning talent as something useful, does he? Well, he thinks, you know, in some ways it's it'll sort of up her. You know, he needs to get her married off, really, and hopefully to somebody with a bit of money because his money problems are so terrible. He can't really put together a story for her. And, you know, it's all he's kind of paying, you know, borrowing from Peter to pay Paul. It's all, you know, his life's a constant series of tricky negotiations with, with money. And he doesn't know how he's going to carry on supporting his family. And but he thinks with her that hopefully someone who's a great art lover will marry her because she can paint and maybe she'll be able to paint lovely portraits of people's children and things. She doesn't want to paint those kind of things. She's much more ambitious. She is a really, truly, fully ambitious, burning, burning with desire to be be judged alongside her male peers she doesn't you know she wants to be a great painter not just a great female painter she wants to be one of the greats and she knows she's got the talent she's convinced of her own talent but this of course is not very feminine and will make her you know kind of problematic as a sort of marriage proposal because she's not really this little modest simpering thing who paints lovely portraits she's a kind of she's she says she speaks her mind and she she's you know she kind of pushes against the patriarchy oh wonderful a difficult woman we love them um i'm guessing for her as well you know it's not like she could look to another female artist for any kind of inspiration of course she'd want to be judged with the boys because i'm guessing there wasn't some of her to look up to and say i could paint like her and um, there were one or two there there was uh Sophie Nispa Anguissola and there were a couple of of very very good painters who were successful working in the period a little bit before her and not necessary I'm not sure if she was in Rome I think there was one female painter in Rome um but they painted portraits and um Sophie Nussbaum was, you know, she was really highly thought of and, you know, very, very gifted. But the subjects that Artemisia wanted to paint are what set her apart, really. And also the kind of sheer talent and the sheer kind of visceral brutality of her work. She picked very violent images often. And um, you see it's just completely different uh, from are the other female painters that were working, the very few. I mean, they were, you know, two or at most three that were of, of any note to have been kind of, for their work to have been remembered now. It's funny, I came across Sophie Nisba um, recently reading about Elizabeth de Valois. She ended up in the Spanish court painting for her and teaching her how to paint because right, she yeah. had ambitions to, it's a nice, a nice thing for a, a queen to do keep her out of trouble um <laughs> so so artemisia's father finds her a tutor uh tassie let's talk about him he he teaches her how to paint but it's not his teachers teachings that change her approach to the canvas is it no, in a way, I mean, what so what Agostino Tassi was was an an incredibly brilliant painter of perspective and buildings. So he could do these extraordinary. I mean, it's almost like a kind of sleight of hand. He could turn, you know, those incredible baroque 
kind of I think of them as sort of great big wedding cake ceilings. You know, mm. it's a flat, but it's painted into series of domes and turrets, and uh, and then you, the sky beyond. And they are so realistic. He was really a master of that kind of painting, and really, really uh, brilliant at it. And if you see his work's absolutely meticulous. If you see it, and I sort of think of him as a kind of visual magician. Mm. And yes, it's really not what he teaches her. You know, she's very keen to learn some of those tricks of perspective, but actually her work doesn't show any of that. You don't, you know, she doesn't really, she just wants, seems to want to know how to do it, I think, because yeah. she's keen to learn as much as her father is keen for her to learn. Yeah, it's not what he teaches her that, that kind of changes her. It's what he does to her. And how, you know, how their relationship pans out. I mean, I don't know how much I can say without um, giving spoilers. but Without I, giving giving spoilers. It's tricky, isn't it? Because when, I, when you... Know, you know, I think, you know, this story is a story about, essentially about a rape. And, um, you know, it could be that he didn't think he was raping her. He thought she was willing, well, you know... Uh, that's not really how how I've um, how I've seen it, um, and so it's that event that really it doesn't. I think it made you know the rage that it, that event generated was the thing that made her painting. It kind of took her painting to another level where. You know, her, her, the painting that she paints in response to that event is clearly something. I mean, it's her true masterpiece. And, um, yeah, yes. So it wasn't his lessons that, uh, that changed her as a painter. So as a historical novelist, you know, when you're putting this together, you're, you're, you're creating a story around, around a person and events that actually happened. Um, all, of, all of this is in legal records isn't it because Artemisia refuses to accept the blame for her assault and she refuses to take um, her father's elegant solution of um of just marrying the guy um it was not that was normal practice and it still is in some cultures now if you know if a young girl is raped a virgin is raped then the rapist is requ- they're required to marry to kind of set you know to kind of restore the honor of the fa- family and you know it's it's really shocking to know that that still happens nowadays but it does and yes so it it's not really in their world and in the world of the novel that i'm creating it's not a shocking thing that she's expected to marry him no but but she simply can't because she has seen something in him that she she's seen a malevolence in him that she just she she knows she can't be married to him no matter how much she feels it will restore her family's honor and of course that's really problematic and it means that there's a a court case in which he's he's uh, refusing to admit any guilt and she's labelled a whore. She really suffers the most unbelievable public humiliation. And she has to prove her testimony under torture. Not him, the one who's 
really lying about it, but her. And I think, you know, I just thought so much about these women who have not been believed when they report abuse and, and violence and and they're not believed. And, you know, that it's happened throughout history. It still happens. And it's a, I think it's a, it's a story that resonates with, with uh, so many women now, then, you know, it's, so I, I feel like she kind of symbolizes, sim, she symbolizes something about male violence on women. And it's still there as a kind of, as, as a representing her in a way. Mm. That's it. I mean, that's what, you know, when you, when you read Artemisia's story, sure, you're reading something set in the 17th century and it's in, it's in lovely Rome where, of course, I'm, I'm not unfortunately sitting right now. So it is, it's another world by all intents and purposes, but her story is so recognizable. Just open up any news site, any newspaper, and it, it feels very, very timely very timely um, and inspiring that she would not, she wouldn't sit down and shut up. No, she wouldn't. She, she refused to be silenced and she refused to be a victim of her situation. She's very much, I feel like, you know, in some ways she, in, she feels quite modern in the fact that she's a survivor rather than a victim. And, and that's what I love about her. You know, she's extraordinary and she's got this incredible resilience. And, you know, that is her true story. And in fact, you know, we know quite a lot about her later life. I only cover this single year in a young year in her life when she's 17, mm. 18. But she went on to become, she did, she was the first woman to be accepted into the Accademia dell'arte in Florence, which was, you know, really, I mean, it was unheard of. And she was uh, then she was uh, a commission to work for the Medici family, who were the rulers of Florence at the time. She really achieved what she set out to achieve, which is such a remarkable thing. And she kind of lived a slightly libertine lifestyle as well. She for a long time, she married quite quickly after the, the court case and moved to Florence with her husband. And um, then not, you know, they, I think they had two or three children and then, but then not long after she took a lover that her husband knew and there are letters between them, quite friendly letters between her husband and the lover that, you know, it seems as if it was completely an accepted thing, um, which I feel is, you know, really, it's, she's got this, kind of counterculture feel about her that she doesn't want to conform to ideas about marriage ideas about female painters ideas about the legal system she wants to do everything her own way and she did um so that's another reason I admire her so much it's, it is so wonderful she does have almost cult status now doesn't she amongst amongst people who who are perhaps um, more of a casual art viewer like I am I mean I love anything Baroque, I'm there for it. And when I went to the exhibition of all Charles I's art collection a few years ago, at the Royal Academy, they got so much of his collection back together. There was this little corner with a small painting of a, of a woman painting herself. And it's the, the very famous self-portrait that she did. Wow. And 
she stuck out like a sore thumb because it just felt like in this entire building of amazing paintings, all painted by men, oh, wow, a woman painted this. And it just felt so special that everyone just kind of loves her. Yeah, and it's a wonderful piece that, uh, yes, that's uh, her self-portrait as the muse of painting, isn't it? And uh, it's all a kind of slightly strange angle and... Mm. Feels, it feels very modern to me that it feels really, you know, as if she's right here with, with us now. Um, it's a beautiful piece. And so she came to England and painted for the English court, um, which is a kind of wonderful thought. She, so she got to travel Europe and paint. She traveled to Florence, to Naples, to England. And, you know, she was a great, great success. Isn't that wonderful? Her work is is obviously something that we still have of her that is tangible. Um, Her paintings just, they leap off the page in the way that you describe them. It's absolutely beautiful. It's almost painterly the way that you've, the way that you've written them. Um, How much of her art informed your creation of her character? That's really my go-to thing for characterizing her and you know obviously I read everything about her I read her letters so we do have her authentic voice and we have her voice in the court transcripts which fortunately uh were I I had in translation not in Latin (laughs) (laughs) I just struggled a bit with that so we we do have a, a sense of her from those documents but for me the greatest sense of her comes from her painting I mean when you take there's the Judith slaying Holofernes which is a painting that's very very prominent in the novel the novel is it kind of focuses on two paintings one is a Susanna and the Elders where this sort of naked woman's having her bath and she's like you know she's she is uh being overlooked by these rather sleazy, nasty men who, you know, in the story, they tell her she's got to sleep with them. Or oh, they'll tell everybody that she's a whore. Very nice, poor woman. Nice. So there's that. And then then there's the Judith slaying Holofernes. It's a biblical scene. She tends to paint these biblical scenes, but it's the ones she chooses that are really telling of her character. She chooses, in my mind, scenes that would now be regarded as feminist. You know, this is that. Like she's painting these nasty men looking over this naked woman and they like, you know, it's it's as if they're kind of raping her with their eyes. It's really a comfortable picture. And, you know, you see a lot of these uh, Susanna paintings where the Susanna is all sort of on display. Yeah. She's completely naked, desperately trying to cover some tiny little piece of cloth and she's got her hands up between herself as, as if she's trying to push the men away. And she, you, she's afraid and you really see it. And so it's a new way of regarding a female that is creates a little discomfort in the view that in a lot of the men's paintings of that same subject or the, the, nude, the female nude in itself. During Holofernes that is... The painting that this uh, the 
so what do you think? when she's though they, they, it was during a, a war in biblical period and uh judith was a jewish woman who went into the camp of the enemy who had besieged their town and they were all starving and and um the water was running out and she goes she sneaks into the the the, the camp and begun the army chief who is called Holofernes and the head of the, the camp and she then beheads him she goes with her maid so it's a picture of two women one you know holding him down while Judith is literally slicing hacking off his head with a sword yeah. now the only person who that I am aware of the only a previous artist who had done that painting at that moment of the head being beheaded was Caravaggio. So for her, a woman to say, I'm going to paint this this way. And there's blood, blood spurting, violent, horrible, terrifying image. You know, that most painters will paint the two women scaled in a basket, you know, that so it's a sort of after the act. And, but this is, it's so uncompromising. And it made me think, firstly, what an uncompromising woman she had to have been to kind of for her biography. Um, and she, she saw, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of losing my thread here, but there's, there's, there's something about that painting to me that made me automatically look at her her biography and the story of violence happened to her and this yeah. as a response to that. And I know a lot of the art historians are loath to judge her work in terms of her biography and the events that the things that men have done her that have created that work. But for me, she is, you know, those things that happened to her are her mm. and her work in my mind as one who also experienced something not dissimilar, her work can only be a response to that. That is a, a formative experience that can, you know, that, why did she choose such violent topics? Uh, you know, like men being killed. You know, there's another one where she's got Yale nailing a great temp in, uh, I think it's David, I'm not, not sure whose head it is, but it's right into the head. It's brutal stuff. And, I think it, you know, for me, it smacks of a kind of painted revenge. So it's they're powerful women. She doesn't she doesn't paint those those women um, as little tiny things with a yeah with a sixteen inch waist um, and flowing hair trying to um, decapitate a man. These are these are properly built women. They've got big arms. They're you. Know, and they're they're showing the it's the differential in in size and strength that it takes two of these women to hold that big man down and get his head off. It's it's so it's so powerful that image. Yes, it's incredibly physical. And yes, I you you mentioned that the the women she paints they're, they're not these sort of simpering little. They are they're they're big and strong and. Yeah, and and that yes, it's and actually she 
often yourself as a model, but I, you know, we don't know which pictures were of her except for the ones that are called self-portraits. Um, yes, and that that's that's something very appealing. She refuses to see women as as incapable of of bad acts in a way, and and in a sense that Judith, it's not really a bad act; it's a heroic act. So she's a mm. female hero. Um, yeah, she's she's quite something. <laughs> <laughs> you describe in your author's note that you know there there is a balance that needs to be struck between removing the woman from her art so that it can be judged purely on merit against all of the other bits of art, and then that inescapable female experience that is in every single one of her brushstrokes. So I guess the question is not whether the art can be separated from the woman but rather whether it should be we need we need her story in there because it elevates her work I think so I think that's what it does I, I I mean I do understand that reticence of art historians you know they they don't want you know they want her to be judged as an artist rather than a female artist, you know, so I do, I do kind of understand that, but I think it's been such a, it's a big, it's a hate that can we divorce the art from the artist? And, you know, you think of Ezra Pound's very beautiful poems, but he was a Nazi. So, you know, it's, they, they are tainted by that. Roman Polanski, I find it very hard to appreciate his films, brilliant though they are, they're t- they're tainted with something, and it, that that's personal. And I know a lot of people are of you know have very strong arguments for divorcing a, an artist from their work, and that you know that if we look at the art of the past, we could find something terrible that's in every work of art. The galleries would have emptied. Um, but I think it has to be a personal thing, and my personal response to her work is. That it, it that you know is is the only response I can have. Um, yeah, it spoke to such a personal part of me, and you know, and became a way for me to explore my own story. Um, which uh, so you know, I couldn't see it any other way. I think that's that's fantastic, and maybe that is why why Artemisia is such a cult figure amongst women. You know. There's so many, so many of us walking around with with varying degrees of experience in, you know, in um, sexual assault, um, in just day to day abuse or you know, right down to sort of you know, the things that we think of as being quite petty, like being catcalled. The idea that, that there's this woman who's painting female heroes really, you know, getting on top of the guys is is quite an empowering thing. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I agree. Yes. And I think that that's that's what I take from it is is empowerment. And I think that does speak to modern women. I think I think modern women don't want to be victims. They want to be strong. They want to be they want to to kind of inhabit the world in and not not kind of shrink into the 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 background of the world and uh inhabit the world in any way they want and and i think that's something you know she she becomes a kind of a blueprint for that <laughs> i i think it's both both her art and and her story as well um i was talking to a friend who is a mental health advocate about the concept of shame and she said that um she was she was paraphrasing a, an American psychologist, but she was saying that the two things that are needed for shame to exist are silence and darkness. And if you speak, you take away the power of shame. And I just, I was thinking about Artemisia in that. That's a fantastic thing. I've not really heard that. And it's so much something that I think I have come to understand. Um, it's really interesting. And I, I used, actually, I was very inspired by this. There's this myth of uh, Philomel and Procne, okay. um, which is it's, it's a story told in Ovid. And I think it's probably told in various other places, but I know it primarily from Ovid. And so Procne and Philomel are sisters and they are the daughters of a king and another king. I can't remember. I wish I could remember his name. I've got a terrible memory. <laughs> Comes and marries Procne and takes her back to his country. But Philomel's so sad to, to be uh, apart from her sister and she really wants to go and visit. So the, the husband comes back and takes her to, to, to her sister. But on the way, they stop off in this place and he brutally rapes her. And she says, well, I'm going to tell everybody what you've done to me. And yeah. so he cuts out her tongue. <laughs> And oh, then, like, um, incarcerates her in the middle of a forest. <gasps> and it's really, those stories are brutal, those those ancient myths. Anyway, she will not be silenced. She must speak out about what happened to her. And so she, she embroiders the, her story. And then when her sister finally, they, they manage to find her and she's able to say what happened to her. And then, of course... The sister is so angry that she serves up her eldest son to the to her husband as dinner. That's the sort Whoa. of thing. Oh, apparently, and then they're, they're all turned into birds, and she becomes a nightingale. Philomel becomes a nightingale, and so hence I have that little nightingale scene at the beginning of the novel. Um, sort of there, she's there in the background of the book, but she was that was a story that was very much an inspiration for me um I remember when I first heard it I was it's so horrifying you can't really think that anyone would think something up like that but these are women they get their revenge in a particularly bloody way but uh but they do and this idea of her embroidering her embroidering her story in some ways I saw Artemisia in that way that the paintings she made were were, were equivalent to that embroidery gosh Wow, now we know where Shakespeare got Titus Andronicus from. 
Yeah, there is that. <laughs> Gosh. Wow. I mean, yes, you know, talk about modern modern sort of video nasties. This is uh you know, we've we've got it from from way back when. Wow. Um <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm taken aback by that. It's a fantastic, what a brilliant story. Um, it feels almost disingenuous to describe Artemisia as being a forgotten artist when she seems to have been deliberately omitted from the record. How how did this happen and who made that decision? Well, I think, you know, I blame the Victorians. Um, but I think really what happened, you know, she was really in her lifetime and then I think what happened is you know that the women you know I think progress for women has not always been one constant forward push it's gone back back and forth back and forth and I think there was a time really that when sort of I suppose late 18th century there'd been a kind of a level of freedom for women in general. I mean, I'm not an expert on, on the, that period at all, but I do think then things like sort of anxieties about, about religion. Um, so perhaps that came with um, ideas coming from um, uh, Darwin and, you know, and philosophers who were starting to question the, you know, the Enlightenment, I suppose, which was way prior to Darwin, but you know that that sort of set the ball rolling, where philosophers were starting to some were starting to kind of question the idea of of a god and all seeing, all dancing, or you know that you know that these things were being questioned, and of course, with that kind of progress that that kind of begins to undermine everything everyone's known. The, people tend to batten down the hatches, and of course, what gets what gets limited first when battens are hatched down, the hatches are battened down. Women's lives, so they wanted to control things, and so by controlling women, you know, if if women were out of control, it was sort of felt that the whole of society was going to fall apart. They wouldn't even know who was siring their children. You know, God forbid. <laughs> So, and, you know, then that became very extreme in the Victorian period. In the Victorian period, they weren't interested in any kind of cultural production by women. There were women writing, and obviously there were women novelists in the Victorian period, but they tended to be novelists that that did have a kind of strong moral moral message. But also, when you think of the Brontes, they had to publish under men's names and George yeah. Eliot, you know, so it was a, a taboo. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we still had the female portrait painters, but women weren't tackling big subjects and they weren't really cre credited for anything. Um, you know, they it it was convenient to think of women as, as lesser than men and that they didn't have equivalent talent. They didn't have um, equivalent intelligence. And, of course, they weren't properly educated either, which is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, yeah so and then you know I think even right through in, into the kind of mid-20th century no one was interested in looking at women's art um and you know you only look um I don't know if you're aware of Katie Hessel's book the story of art without men um oh, yeah. or no it's yes the story of art 
Um, it's been a very, very successful book, uh, which, you know, and her, her aim is to really look through history at women's art. And there's so much of it. and But it's not in, you know, it's only now they're starting to, I think the Tate Britain have done a rehang of the gallery and they've got a lot more women's art in there now. But I think it was something like, I think 1% of the art in the National Gallery is by women. Wow. And I do think they're doing they're, they're doing things to redress that, but it's quite shocking. And that, that anyway, I think she became aware of that statistic, and that was what what uh, spurred her to write her book, which has been a huge success. And I think it's it's just been launched in America, to, and it's really really taken off. So it's great. It's all good for women artists. That's fantastic. Well, we recommend yeah. that to um, to our listeners to go and find. Uh, so. Artemisia has been overlooked, ignored, forgotten, misunderstood. If you had 30 seconds to reintroduce Artemisia to the world, what would you say? Oh, goodness. That's tricky, <laughs> isn't it? Um, I, might, I, might, I might be repeating myself, but, but I say, okay, take yourself back to Rome in 1611. It's, you know, you're back in the past, Women are in uh, women are in a position where their their only uh, option for the, their future, young women, is to marry and have children. That's what they're for, um, and to be decorative. And this there's this young painter. She's female. She doesn't care about how she looks. She doesn't care about marriage. She doesn't. There's nothing that interests her except her painting and she's she she knows how talented she is but it's a everything about her is taboo and she creates the most bold and bloody and visceral painting it's shocking terrifying a true masterpiece you know something only a, a, a subject only Caravaggio has depicted in paint and it's really really shocking that this work this masterpiece is by a woman She's bold, she's uncompromising, but she's completely clear about her artistic ambitions. She wants to be, she, she refuses to be defined by her father or some future husband or her ability to produce children. No, she wants to be judged alongside her male peers as an equal. But to achieve this, she's got to face the most extraordinary hardship, enough to crush any ordinary person. And she uses it to inform her art and she proves to us that she's no ordinary person. So, yeah, she conquers uh, conquers <laughs> That's fantastic, Elizabeth. I so, so love this woman and, uh, and I'm so glad that you brought her to life for us. Um, but I can't let you go without asking about Firebrand. This must be an incredibly exciting moment for you. So Queen's Gambit, is now, it's Jude Law. What's going on? So Queen's Gambit is my first novel. that It was published 10 years ago this year. And it has just premiered as a feature film starring Alicia Vikander and Jude Law as Catherine Parr and Henry VIII. That we, you cannot believe how terrifying <laughs> Jude, he transformed into this real monster and they they are extraordinary and it premiered in Cannes and 
Yes, you know, there's a big buzz about it. It's going to be released in the in the probably autumn, winter. We don't have an actual date yet, but it's, you know, it will be released internationally. It's sold in all the territories and it's super exciting. It was an incredible, I went to Cannes for the premiere, which was just an amazing kind of an amazing experience. I'm still on cloud nine, to be honest. I can't quite believe that that it's happening. And um, we're, I, there's a new edition of Queen's Gambit going to be published simultaneously to the, the when the movie comes out here as Firebrand. And it's a new edit. I've, I haven't changed it, but I've tidied it up. So I thought it would, wouldn't be the right thing to really change it. Although, you know, I could have gone to town and completely rewritten it. But I think I, my editor might have actually murdered me. <laughs> um, really tied it up, made it more fluent. You know, over 10 years, I've really developed as a writer. So I think, you know, I think it's a tidier and better book. But oh. uh, it's still the same book. And so that's really exciting. So all the things with disobedience and that all coming at once. It's it's it is a really exciting moment for me. That really is. I mean, who? Which, what writer wouldn't, given the chance to look at a manuscript from ten years ago, want to just little nip and tuck here and there? <laughs> yeah. yeah, and something I was horrified by. <laughs> is it? Is it? I know, that that. that <laughs> is it true that Jude Law had a very special um, perfume made for himself to wear when he was dressed as Henry VIII? 100% true, yes. No. I smelt it. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, yeah, he did. And he's very much, you know, the kind of actor that really kind of gets down and dirty with a role. And he, you know, learned to play the various musical instruments and he there's lots of music in it and and he yes he had this awful stinking scent uh concocted um because he wanted to kind of create he wanted to sort of apparently henry the eighth you could smell him three rooms away in his later life because he had this suppurating ulcer that wouldn't heal and so you know he smelled of rotting basically and uh yeah and so jude wanted to kind of recreate that that atmosphere and i think i think well what he says is that he was using it just a tiny little dab to kind of get him his get himself into the into the role but the kareem who is the director when he learned of it he was spraying it all around the, oh. the... <laughs> oh my goodness in the film you can see them all going (laughs) and you know that it would have really stunk so it kind of created a certain authenticity I don't know what all the camera crew felt about it (laughs) I think they were wearing their Covid masks quite tightly (laughs) I bet they were glad for them well we look forward to the movie tie-in scented candles um, (laughs) scratch and sniff (laughs) programme Oh, my goodness, it sounds absolutely horrific. Elizabeth, thank you so much for coming and talking to me today. Disobedient is going to be published on the 27th of July, so make sure you pick up a copy, and I can't wait to see what you do next. Well, thank you so much. We've had such a great chat. You've asked me such great questions, and um, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you.